This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Lepstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or, or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. My guest back on the show is Leanne Domash. She's a psychotherapist with a practice in New York City and she's the author of a fascinating and wonderful new book titled Imagination, Creativity, and Spirituality in Psychotherapy. Welcome to Wonderland. Leanne, welcome back to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. So my point in writing the book is to stimulate people's creative desire that they should want to create something whatever that could be. It could be a new dish for dinner. It could be experimenting with paper mache pottery like my daughter is doing now. It could be learning a new language. It could be anything, but just something to expand themselves and that they have to be able to sense that they lack something in order to motivate them to do it. And so it's how to tolerate that, again, what I talk about in the book, the feeling of a void. They have to sense some kind of void in them that then motivates them to do something and that the void is a very frightening thing for people. It can be. Yeah. And so they don't want to feel it. So they sort of stay in their kind of corner where they're comfortable, but they don't expand. And so you have to be willing or able to learn to tolerate the feeling of not knowing and then something forms. And helping people to recognize that every one of us is innately creative. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So today, essentially, we're going to be talking about how people can use your book or the principles in your book 
to engage their own creativity in whatever way they're moved to. There's no judgment about big or small. It's just engaging in the act of creativity. Absolutely. And I just want to emphasize that we can get these creative ideas everywhere. You can read the newspaper. You can look at the Internet. You can listen to some funny streaming thing on TV and you get ideas. Like I just came across something. I mean, I have a lot of projects going on right now and I have no time to do anything else. But I come across things that I would love to do. Like, my parents spoke Yiddish at home, and I never understood the Yiddish. Well, I just saw free Yiddish lessons online, and I thought, what fun that would be to take it. I read in the paper a couple of days ago about these pastry chefs who were laid off, and one saw these tiny bunt pans in Williams-Sonoma, and she bought them just without thinking, and she designed this business where she makes these very elaborate tiny cakes for people, and she's, like, sold out for months to come. Another pastry chef said when she was laid off, she started her business, and she's Asian-American, and she said she never really had a chance to use Asian flavors in desserts because she always worked for fancy French restaurants. But now that she has her own business, she's being very creative with that, and it's very successful. So... You can just get ideas everywhere. I love that aspect of the world and how it's always communicating with us in ways and expanding more and more new things to us if we're paying attention. And even if we're not paying attention, some things will get through. Some things will get through, but you do, I think, have to have an intention to let things get through. Because I have worked with people who don't see things around them. You know, it's kind of like these apocryphal stories of these people who go on these wilderness trips and they have no food, and then all of a sudden they start to see all kinds of food around them that they never realized was there. So I think people who have become harmed by trauma of some kind have become rigid and inflexible, and the question is how can you make your mind more flexible so you can receive these thoughts. So how does that relate to the notion of the void that you talk about? Well, I think that lots of times when we're trying to solve a problem, say we're planning to retire and we just can't think of anything that we can do in retirement and we're just worried we're going to become depressed. There's a kind of void. The feeling of retirement is a kind of a void We have to allow ourselves to kind of scan the environment and see and let things come to us so that we can figure out meaningful things that will really make us happy in retirement. Or maybe we'll decide we're not going to retire at all, that we're doing something now and we love it and we're going to keep doing it, but maybe at a lesser pace, a slower pace, work less, but continue to work. But you have to be willing to confront that you don't know. The not knowing is a void. And you have to have the faith that if you stay in the not knowing, something will formulate. And it might formulate when you're in the shower in the morning. It might formulate in a dream that you kind of elaborate when you wake up. 
It might formulate as soon as you wake up in the morning. You may go for a walk in the woods and some idea will come to you. Usually it's when you're relaxed and not pressured and all of the busyness of the day isn't upon you that these ideas come. What about the idea of asking and incubating questions about something that you're pondering about or or wondering about in the realm of the unknown, something that you clearly don't know what you want to do with it, but it's something that is um, kind mm-hmm. of kind of itching at you. And also, mm-hmm. once you ask the question, to actually give it the space to incubate. So, as you were saying, relaxing and, and letting go of it after setting the question or setting the intention mm. or formulating the desire and then mm. and then letting it go and letting letting mm. it go into the universe as you mm. know you've taken the step of asking the universe for more information or for some guidance you mm. to help you navigate this new journey into the unknown and now you have to take the step of relaxing and letting go and allowing the world mm-hmm. or the universe to respond Right, right. Yes, you could do it that way by setting the intention and then things will appear to you as answers to the question because you will have an intention of answering that question. But there's also a formal method of incubation that I describe in my book where you can take a kind of memory and this technique is called incubation, actually. And you take a, like, say you have a problem. And I did in my book, I explained one of the chapters was on biology. And I was very nervous about this chapter because I'm not a biologist. And it's more medically oriented. And it was about, you know, procreation and chromosomes and evolution. And none of these are my field. And I was really afraid that I wouldn't present it as well as it could be presented. And so I did an incubation on this, and I gathered some memories around this problem, and I worked it like a dream. So I had a memory of an image, and then I had another image, and then I had another image. And the third image was of a horse, a young horse, trying to get up out under this haystack. And so it was like the ideas were trying to come up. And I worked this like a dream. And I go into the technique in my book in great detail, but if somebody wants to read that chapter, they would get an idea of what I'm talking about and how to do it. You can do it for yourself, I think. Yeah, Um, I want to ask you more specifically about that process, like you said, going into your memory like you would reflect upon images in a dream. Right. So you're delving into your your memory for images from your past. Yeah. It could be a recent memory. It could be a memory from the past, like whatever you associate to this problem. So I had three memories that I associated to this problem. It wasn't logical, but I just had them. And I used those three memories. Can about you share the images so that yeah. listeners can yeah. can really get a sense of the process? Okay. 
the first image was of I had been told by a doctor that I needed a serious operation. And I kind of didn't believe it, and I also was very nervous, so I went to the top expert in New York City in this problem, and he looked at all the MRIs and everything, and he said, you don't need any operation. Your body is taking care of it on its own. And he showed me how. And I was, like, dumbfounded because guess what? That's what the chapter was about. And he didn't know anything about the chapter. The chapter was about how our body is biologically creative on its own and frequently takes care of many problems in a very creative and spontaneous way. And he said, that's what's happening with this problem. It's being taken care of by your body, and you don't have to do anything. Well, of course, I told him about the chapter. I said, this is so eerie. But anyway, I went back down to the lobby because his office was in a hospital. I went back down to the lobby of the hospital and I called my husband and I was like so relieved because I was writing my book and I didn't want to be interrupted with an operation. And I, of course, I was terrified to have one anyway. And the happiness that I felt when I called my husband, that was the first memory. The happiness I felt that my time is mine and my body is taking care of it on its own. So that was the first anchor. The second anchor was of a mentor of mine who I had told about the chapter and he was extremely critical of the ideas, which was, of course, adding to my anxiety. So the picture of him being critical, the look on his face, that was the second anchor. And the third anchor was of this horse, this young horse, trying to get up out from under all this heavy hay that was on top of him. So I put those three together to form a composite. And by that, I mean, I repeat them in my mind over and over again, the three images, forwards and backwards. And I practice it. And that creates a new pattern and lo and behold, I was able to write the chapter. So, you know, if you look at it, it was happiness and relief that I could take care of it on my own. The criticality was integrated into it from the mentor. And the struggle to break free and, and come into one's own was also in there. So these are elements. You, you want to include the criticality. You don't want to leave it out because that's part of the mix. And through this mix, something new happens. So I love the example that you gave. I mean, it's very rich in many different ways. And I also love that you're integrating a positive and a negative element into the dynamic. Yeah. Well, that's very important. You want to integrate everything. You know, I was looking at it very critically, myself critically. That's like the second image. But also what's more new is that horse struggling to break free and the happiness that, oh, my God, my body can take care of it on its own. And in a sense, that's what happened to my mind. I was able to take care of the chapter on my own. So, yeah, the positives and the negatives, everything together the darkness and the light, if you want to look at it that way. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because we're often self-critical or negative about our own 
creativity or ability to deal with a new situation. Exactly. And that that was my mentor, but my mentor also echoed my own fears. Right. Right. So we, we shouldn't be afraid of negativity or criticism because we can actually use it in a skillful way to help mm-hmm. propel or further incubate or empower right. the incubation of this creative right. process. You have to marry that, though, with some other images. And that's why this memory thing is good, because you will have different memories. Right. You know, it's like cooking. You need to, You need to mix the right ingredients, because one ingredient by itself isn't going to do it. Right. Imagine a whole meal just of chilies. It would be unedible. Exactly. If you put just a little bit in with a chicken dish, it can make it great. Right. And adding a little sweetener, a little sugar or honey or maple syrup or something. Same principle. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I feel everything comes down to cooking. Right. Life is cooking, (laughs) you know, in many ways. Yeah. Well, because everything is balanced. You have to have a balance of this and a balance of that and the sweet and the sour. And mm-hmm. I also think of it this way, stability and change. Everything is a mixture of those two things, that we have our stable core of our personality. That really doesn't change with therapy. But all kinds of other things change and we evolve. But, you know, in order for good evolution to take place, you have to have that balance. It's true in evolution itself that there's a lot of stability built into the change. And so I just think that's an interesting idea. And you have to always have the two in tandem. Sometimes you want more stability. Other times you want more change. But you always have both elements. And I saw an exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art of Edgar Degas' lithographs, and he took the same image but kept changing it slightly. He would add colors. He would do after images. He would send it through many times rather than just once. And so you got the same image but a different image each time, and it was very beautiful. And it's the same idea of stability and change. So getting back to creativity and the principle of how art can be used for healing as well as for expanding ourselves, Mm. which are often intertwined. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's two ways. One is theater and the other is architecture. And let me take maybe the easier one, theater first. Theater gives the viewer an aesthetic distance so that they can work through trauma that they see on stage, but they don't feel as personally threatened by it. And I wrote a series of plays, all of which dealt with trauma, and we had talkbacks with the audience afterwards. All the cast and the director and myself talked with the audience, and it was like really fascinating to see how they really related to their own traumas in life and became incredibly personal in the audience, which I was a little bit surprised at. I mean, people didn't hold back. And you could see that they were working through issues or trying to by looking at this theater. So I think it's just an interesting way. And some of the audiences had patients in them. Some had clinicians in them. 
some with just the general public, but they all were open. So let's get specific. Let's get specific okay. with this. You wrote a play titled A Joke for Bella. Mm-hmm. I would love for you to flesh this out using that play as an example of this whole process and also the uh, talk back that occurred afterward. Mm. Well, this play started with an idea I got that I wanted to visit the Jewish Museum in Berlin. And my husband and I did go to visit it and spent two whole days there. And ironically, again, another synchronicity thing where something uncanny happens, you know, we arrived there the only day of the year that it's open until 2 a.m. So I really spent hours and hours there, and then we came back the next day. So I really had a full immersion in this museum. And I felt it was a very healing experience for me, and this is another example of how art can heal. And, you know, later, if you want, I can tell you how I think the architect did it. But he designed a space that was healing. But from that experience, that led me to write a joke for Bella, which is about two inmates in a work camp during World War II, two Jewish inmates. And just like the architect, Daniel Liebskin, had some light moments in the museum to counter the difficult moments of facing the horror, like there were a lot of interactive exhibits and fun things and beautiful displays in addition to the horror part, that I used jokes in this play to leaven the horror. And I used jokes from a book called Laughter in Hell, which was a recording of actual jokes that were told during those years, either in Germany or in the camps. Somebody collected these jokes, so we sprinkled them throughout the play. And my point was, in part, was to show how humor can build resilience, how friendship can build resilience and illusion. Because one of the characters developed the illusion that the commandant at the camp was in love with her. And whether this was true or not, it kept her going. And how, in extreme cases, illusion can help you is positive. It might have been a delusion, although in the play he does help her and sacrifices himself at the end for her. So she might have been right. And anyway, we can make it so. Yeah. Through our imagination, through the through yeah. the stories yeah. that we choose to tell. Yeah. And so I really love this play because the friendship between the two women was so great. And it was just a very interesting thing to me. And the characters become so real to you. And this is another thing that I emphasize in the book and I think is important. When you create, you sort of have to let it have a life of its own in a way. You can start the process, but the meal you're making eventually becomes what it wants to be. You can't totally control everything. And the characters become who they want to be, too. And, you know, say you having a child, you guide them, you direct them to some extent, but they're going to become who they should be, not who you think they should be. So there's this delicate, again, 
balance between you start the process, but eventually the creation takes over. And this is from, you know, Jeremiah and the fable of the potter and his clay, where at first the potter thinks he's making the pot and he's in control, but eventually the pot tells the potter what it's going to be. Right. And there are many authors who talk about how their characters actually dictate to them the direction that they want to go in and and how they mm-hmm. reveal themselves and who they are, and that the writer mm-hmm. is merely a vessel for those characters to reveal themselves through. Right, right. And, you know, in the talkback, one person talked about his parents. Uh, the father had helped liberate the camps and the trauma to the father, and he talked about how much it meant to him to see this. Someone else had had parents in the war, and she commented how this helped her think about that. I told some things from my past that helped me when I discussed it. I was one of the participants who was revealing in this, in the talk pack. Would you like to share any of that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of stuff about the Holocaust came back to me. First of all, many relatives of my mother and grandmother were taken to the camps. My grandmother and mother lived in this country during World War II, but many of their relatives would not come here. They didn't believe anything would happen. And they were very in touch with them. They knew what was happening. I don't know how they knew so well, but they did. And they were like so distraught about not being able to do anything. And they passed this kind of anxiety down to me. You know, it continued after the war. So I was very aware of the trauma of the Holocaust. And then my grandmother, who was quite a resilient woman herself, decided that what every, oh, one group lived. It was my grandfather's brother, and apparently they look almost identical. They were like twins. And he and his family were reunited after the war, after being in concentration camps. And my grandmother decided to send them a refrigerator. This is like 1946. And she carted up a refrigerator and sent it to Israel. Well, she didn't know they were living like in tents in the desert. (laughs) They had no electricity at all. Mm -hmm. But it did arrive. They got it and they sold it. And it was so valuable that with the proceeds, they were able to buy an actual apartment in Haifa that was completely furnished so they could leave this tented camp. And so my grandmother was able to help them, but I felt by writing this play, I was helping my mother and grandmother, who have long since died, work through some of their anguish and some of their problems, both by visiting the museum and writing this play, that it was therapeutic for me to write it. And on top of that, there's a whole other thing that one of my grandmother's brothers was a playwright and was having so much success in Vienna that he refused to leave, even though my grandmother and grandfather offered him money to come. He sent all of his effects, like his dishes, his clothing, his linens, he and his wife sent everything, but they never came. 
by the time they were willing to come, there was a quota. They couldn't be admitted. So they got on a boat to Palestine to go there, and the British sunk that ship because they didn't want Jews going to Palestine. So this is a tragedy. But I also felt by writing the play, I was sort of contacting him. So it was like a very multi-layered thing that was going on with both the trip to the museum and writing the play. So how did the writing of the play and the performance and experiencing all of that help your healing? Well, I think when a writer or any artist creates a work of art, they take it out of their internal life and they put it into the external world. And even if it's the artist himself, as opposed to, say, a viewer of the art, you feel a transformation from that. You feel there's a witness for yourself. You feel that you're not as alone. You feel there's something to comfort you. There's a healing that goes on when you create. That made me think of how there are times when, you know, I think to myself a lot in my head. I talk to myself. Mm -hmm. I have these very in-depth conversations and deep inquiries. But sometimes I find that, or often I find that, when I do it out loud Mm -hmm. with somebody present, Mm -hmm. I have a much deeper insight or I have many Mm -hmm. more insights doing that. Because you have a witness. There's a transformation from speaking it. You're kind of creating your art through your verbalization. Plus, if it's about something distressing, you're kind of restoring, this is fancy language, but you're restoring the empathic other that is lost in trauma. If someone has a traumatic experience, there is no feeling of empathy from the other person who's creating that traumatic experience. But if you tell it to a trusted person, whether it's a friend, a partner, an adult child who loves you, or your therapist, there's a sense of a restoration of the empathic other. Plus, you've created that change from internal to external. So you've created transformation for yourself. So it's both. And I think, you know, you're not lonely anymore. Right. You're creating a space where so much more is possible than the limitations of the old story that was locked locked up. Exactly. And that's another thing that I stress in my book, and I think people can take and use in their everyday life, is the importance of the sacred relationship between people. And by that, I mean very deep listening to each other and reciprocal that they listen to you very deeply. This creates a wonderful space where new ideas are possible, where you feel validated, where you can relax enough to have an unconscious idea come to you. And, you know, there's this apocryphal story about Martin Buber. You know, he's a famous theologian and rabbi and spoke all over the world, and he was preparing a lecture, and a young rabbinical student came in to see him, 
and the rabbinical student was very distressed and trying to talk to him, and Boober was only half listening. And he was rearranging the papers on his desk, and he's worried about his lecture, and the student left, and the student committed suicide shortly after that. And Boober was horrified and vowed that from then on, he would try to have an I-thou relationship with other people, which for him was an echo of your relationship with God. But by I-thou, he means listening deeply, listening to what's underneath the words, not giving just superficial attention to people. And he called what he did with that student an I-it relationship. And so, you know, he wasn't treating him like he was a real human being. And so it's very healing for others and ourselves if we have I-thou relationships with our friends, our family, our students, anyone, with you and me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we should be listening to each other very deeply, yes. which you do, Tonio, by the way. So that's wonderful. Yes, this reminds me of many years ago, I was living in this wonderful spiritual community where we used to have these meetings together where we would sit in a circle and we would create this sacred space within which we would each get to talk about what was going on for us in relation to each other one at a time. And we began it by doing a deep salutation to each other you know, acknowledging and recognizing the divine within them as we would the divine within ourselves. And then from that place, we literally created a sacred space within which we would deeply listen to each other and also deeply open up the space for ourselves to talk very deeply and honestly about whatever was going on within ourselves. Yeah, well, that's very much like the Kabbalah that says, you know, we have to find the divine spark within and that we need to know ourselves as deeply as possible. And that's sacred. That's a sacred act, which is very similar to psychotherapy, although they don't call it sacred. But the purpose is to one of the purposes is to find the true self. Right. What we were doing, self. right, what we called what we were doing was psycho-spiritual work. Yeah, exactly. That's what it was, exactly. It's a combination of psychology and spirituality, which is what I'm sort of trying to emphasize in the book. Exactly. And the interesting thing is that I've always felt since I started doing therapy that psychotherapy has an implicit spirituality, But it was never discussed until rather recently when people are now talking about this. Or that at least it needs to include that dimension to it. Yeah, right. Well, the deep listening, the faith that has you have to have faith in the therapist and the process. And the therapist has to have faith in the patient or it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Just like the placebo effect. If you don't believe that the medicine is going to help you, it's probably not going to help you. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And the placebo effect is so powerful. You know, I have a chapter in there, that chapter on biology, that talks about the placebo effect 
in some cases, like especially, for example, Parkinson's disease, there was this study that was done where they were going to put some kind of cells into the brains of Parkinson patients that were medicinal and therapeutic. And they had a control group and the treatment group, and they drilled holes in the heads of everybody, but they only gave the medicine to the treatment group. And lo and behold, if you thought you got the treatment, they totally improved, and people with Parkinson's who had been immobile were riding around on their bikes, and they didn't get any treatment. They just thought they got the treatment. This is how powerful the placebo effect can be. So you must have faith in a treatment. And, you know, many times that's enough, or that can be quite a bit. Yeah, and I have an interesting relationship with the placebo effect in that I have a a long-standing understanding of the placebo effect, and I have this this tendency to use it against myself in a negative way in that I discount the potential positive effects to work in a heal to have a healing effect on me. You know, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not understanding. You mean you don't think the placebo effect is real? No, I know that the placebo effect is real, and I tend to use it against myself by doubting that that the substance that I'm using to heal myself will have any efficacy because I know that things work by the placebo effect and that, therefore, I should be able to trigger that effect within myself without oh, without I the see. substance. And therefore, mm. it's not the substance that does any of the healing. So therefore, I short-circuit the potential positive effect of the substance. I see what you mean. But the thing is, the substance also has an effect. It's the two together that work. It's not like, because all of these medicines are what was above and beyond the placebo effect. So I think a way to reframe that is you need both, and they work synchronistically. Right. Exactly. That's that's my point, because what I was effectively doing was negating the effect of them by doubting them. There's something called the nocebo effect, which is when your mm-hmm. doubt is strong enough, it will negate, it will actually negate yes. the positive effect. Yes, yes. And I have seen that with patients. Definitely, definitely. Yes, I see what you mean. Yes, you can do that. You can negate it if it's strong enough. If I would think about it, I would think that I've got two important things in my armamentarium. I've got the placebo effect and the actual effect. So together they're going to make me even better than either one alone. That's a good way to approach it. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, I totally agree. And a lot of times with antidepressants, this is the case. They say they're never going to help me. It's not going to work. You know, I've read this and this, and I know it doesn't work. And sure enough, nothing happens. And people do the same thing with negative things in the environment. They can actually use a type of placebo effect that renders a negative effect or thing in the environment impotent against them by counteracting it within their own mind. Yeah. In their own belief of its power over them. Hmm. What would be an example of that? Um, let's say a cancer-causing 
agent in the environment that somebody is actually physically exposed to, mm-hmm. and yet through their power of belief mm. and faith in their own mm. ability to counteract that or to mm. empower their their own body to mitigate the negative effects of it, mm. therefore rendering it inert against them. Mm. Well, I could see that. <laughs> this is sort of humorous because when I was growing up, I was very self-reliant and I was very industrious and I just wanted to rise above my circumstances. So I had all kinds of friends who, like, stayed home for the sniffles or had allergies. And I said to myself, I have no time for this. I have no time for allergies. I have no time for sickness. And, like, I I was never sick. And I never had any allergies. And I don't know if that's because of my willpower, but that's exactly what I did. I said, I, I just am too busy. I have no time for this. I have more important things to do than lay around the house being sick. Right. Sounds like you created your own kind of <laughs> super resiliency because it was important to you to not be, to have your life interrupted by these outer things that were affecting other people. Yeah. And like I remember just trying to will it and it seemed to have worked. I don't know if that's, you know, I mean, you never know though. You never know whether. Well, think about, you know. think about the example of how different people respond to trauma in different ways. Some people oh, yeah. have a very strong innate resilience and mm-hmm. that when they experience a traumatic event, let's use something very extreme, like let's say someone either gets raped or witnesses a horrible killing. Some mm-hmm. people will be traumatized for the rest of their life or until mm-hmm. they get serious therapy Whereas other Mm -hmm. people can walk away going, yeah, that was a horrible experience, but somehow or other, their inner constitution is solid Mm -hmm. enough to contain it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's a whole other thing about resilience and your imagination can really help you become more resilient. But I think it's also will. There's something... People have different levels of will. And, you know, I don't know if that's innate or you can develop that. I'm not sure. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's a good question. But I I mean, like about the rape, God forbid, you know, my first thought was, I'm not going to let that bastard destroy the rest of my life. Right. You know, that would be my, I think, reaction. I would be so enraged that it was going to destroy the rest of my life, that I would do everything I could. I mean, I would get help. I would get therapy. But I would be determined not to let that destroy me because it's bad enough to go through that horrible event, but it's even worse to let it destroy the rest of your life. Yeah. And, And also, like if somebody was to get brutalized, physically beaten by somebody else in a way that traumatized them, one could look at it as, well, I could have a car accident or I could slip and fall and have the same injuries happen to my body, but my experience of trauma would be very different. Yeah. So, again, it's a combination of imagination and narrative. Yeah, yeah, and context. You know, and context. Too. And what it brings up from the past, you know. Right. If you've never had another trauma, 
it might be easier. But if this triggers, you know, this simulates still a prior trauma, it's even worse. So there are a lot of different things. I mean, we see people who were in the concentration camps and some people, you know, okay, it's there deep down, but they went on to live incredibly productive lives and others never got over it. Never, never could function. And it's really hard to quantify or qualify why those experiences had different effects upon different people. Yeah, well, maybe if you could do a study, you might, you know, look at the age they were pre-concentration camp, if they had been given a solid foundation in their youth with their families and so on, and if they were able to have any friendships in the camps, if they had anything that was guiding them, you know, like Viktor Frankl, you know, he was in the concentration camp. He was the doctor in the camp. They gave him no medicines. He just did whatever he could to help. He was given an opportunity to leave. He wouldn't leave because he said, I'm not leaving my patients. But this gave him such a feeling of purpose and meaning that it really helped him. So he was able to sustain some kind of hope for his patients. And that gave him the resilience to continue. There could be some intergenerational components to this, like if our ancestors have experienced mm-hmm. trauma in the past that they have not been able to resolve. Sure. What will get passed down to us is a greater susceptibility to that kind of trauma, whereas if we have ancestors who are very strong and resilient and have been brought up with tremendous mm-hmm. amount of support and love, that will get passed down to us so that we will have a foundation, a strong foundation of of that kind of resiliency already built into us. Right, right. But you know, it's still a mystery. Mm-hmm. Because I heard this case presented years ago where these parents had met in a psychiatric institution. They were both schizophrenic. They married, they got out, they had two children. They were still schizophrenic and I don't think being treated. They used to do things like have sex on the kitchen table and the kids would hide in the closet. So when this came to the attention of the authorities, you know, the kids were taken away and the kids were brought into therapy and I heard a presentation of their therapy. And the psychologist could not find anything wrong with these kids. They seemed like perfectly normal kids. There was nothing to treat them for. Now, how do you understand that? You know, I don't think they got much care. But yet, you know, there are so many different possibilities when the sperm and the egg are created that maybe they just got the only resilient genes that were present in these parents or something but they got something that kept them going. And I've always thought about that case, that we don't have the answers. Genetics has a lot to do with it. And there are rare cases where genetics can carry the day and no matter what kind of trauma. But I I mean, these parents didn't abuse these children, but they didn't care for them either. And they exposed them to things that kids shouldn't see. But it's just really interesting. I think Each person is built with a temperament, comes into the world with a temperament, 
and some of those temperaments are more resilient than others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating example, and it brings up the notion of of quantum uncertainty, and I think Mm -hmm. the nature of, of the unknown, I think, can be very empowering. I think it can actually be a source of great faith that anything is possible in that vo- yeah. in that void we are given the chance to create quite literally anything yeah yeah and so. you should never prejudge you know you should never say these kids are doomed mm-hmm. no they're not doomed exactly and so you know basically we want people to develop both an openness and a resilience at the same time In a sense, we don't want you to be resilient because we want you to just be open and receptive. But at the same time, we want you to be strong and resilient. So again, it's that balance, that paradox. So the first iteration of resilience that you're referring to made me think of you don't want to have strong defenses or overly strong boundaries. You want to have a very flexible resiliency, an open an open resiliency. Exactly. And I just wrote a short article for a psychological newsletter, and the theme was agile resilience, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is what we want right now during COVID. Yep. And which we want, you know, throughout our lives. We want that for everybody. Yes. It relates to the ability to improvise. Absolutely. With whatever we're given. Absolutely. And sometimes, That's the whole story. Right. Sometimes we're given very painful, traumatic things to work with, and our ability mm-hmm. to improvise and create meaning out of it, you know, in a, in a positive sense, is something that is always possible, is always available. Right. And that example of Viktor Frankl in the camps, that was the worst possible situation, and he found meaning in staying with his patients. Mm-hmm. Right. He found meaning within the context of constant horror. Mm-hmm. And I think that everyone is looking for meaning, whatever gives their life meaning. And some people have a lot of trouble finding what will give their life meaning. And others, and I, I think, again, it comes down to being receptive, to being receptive to the universe is always giving us answers, but we just have to hear them as to what will give us meaning. Right. And maybe you could help clarify what you mean by meaning in that some people can also create negative meaning. Mm. Well, I mean meaning that is fulfilling. What I mean is meaning gives you a sense of purpose, meaning that will make you happier, meaning that will give you, if you participate in the activity, you will get into a sense of flow, which is a wonderful feeling where you just get immersed in whatever you're doing and will give you a lot of satisfaction if you complete an activity in this endeavor. That's what I'm referring to. I'm not talking about creating negative meaning by looking and saying, oh, my God, I'm going to fail at that, or, oh, my God, I think I'm going to get that disease because COVID is everywhere. I don't mean that. Mm -hmm. Or I don't belong. I'm nothing. I'm not. I'm worthless. I don't deserve. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. The kind of meaning I'm talking about makes you feel worthwhile. It's the opposite. Right. Because like Viktor Frankl felt, 
he was very important to these people. He was, you know, I think his self-esteem must have been pretty high because he was their only hope. They were looking to him. And he was totally, I think, relying on placebo effect because they wouldn't give him any medicines. But he helped some people. And I'm sure if the people, you know, God forbid, perished, at least they perished with someone who cared about them. Exactly. Which is important. Right. That can make all the difference in the world. Yeah. And, you know, it's sort of like that Supreme Court justice said when he talked about porn, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. The same thing with meaning. You know when you found something that gives you meaning. You feel it. Right. And it's very unique to each person. Yeah. Yeah. And again, this is another interesting thing. You know, in terms of trying new things, I use this phrase called optimal frustration, that when raising children, you want to have them be frustrated, but in an optimal way so they learn. You can't make it so easy for them that they never learn anything. They never develop a kind of strength and resilience, but it shouldn't be so hard for them that they feel overwhelmed. And, you know, I think this is what we each have to do for ourselves. We have to find activities that give us meaning and they're usually things that are optimally frustrating that they're hard but they're not impossible and we feel a tremendous sense of achievement when we do it and of course it has to be of high interest to us too Mm -hmm. and I think that's what keeps you happy yeah and it relates back to what you were talking about earlier about using three elements, three images Mm -hmm. to incubate Mm -hmm. a new perspective or a new, a new way of approaching something. And one of of those elements mm -hmm. has to be a challenge. Yes. Yes. The mentor was challenging me and telling me, you know, the horse was being challenged to some extent, but it was making it up. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to have these varied elements if you're going to do that kind of work because the images kind of talk to each other and they kind of get intermingled and they get cooked and something new happens. In other words, it's no longer flour, eggs, butter, baking powder. It's now cake. It's something new. Mm -hmm. Like my daughter, my adult daughter just convinced me to start taking these dance lessons with her online And it's Middle Eastern dancing, which is, like, totally different than any dancing I've ever known. And at first I felt pretty overwhelmed because it's really so much harder than you'd ever imagine. Are you talking about belly dancing? Yeah, belly dancing, but it's called tribal fusion. And it's belly dancing mixed in with other elements. And it's very hard. And I started and I thought, oh, my God, this is too hard. And now I've done it a number of times. It's getting easier, and I now feel like I could do it. So you have to kind of stick with it. And now it's starting to come into the realm of optimal frustration. At first, it was just frustrating. Mm -hmm. But it's beginning, and actually, I see it's up to me. If I want to practice a lot, I'll just get better and better. If I don't practice much, it'll remain very frustrating. So I'm going to try to practice it more just for the fun of it. And, you know, 
it's kind of good for your mind to do something new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk more about novelty and the importance of that and how that relates to creativity and also how it fits in with, like, often when we have a creative impulse or creative desire, sometimes we don't know how to manifest it. It's something that seems like it's outside the realm of our ability, and therein mm. is the challenge that we face. Yeah. And how that relates to the importance of novelty, you know, in our continual growth and expansion and evolution. Mm. And perhaps even healing. Well, the first thing I thought of was, you know, again, when I say open, I'm kind of talking about right brain thinking, which is kind of the holistic imagination, visual imagery, all of that is in the right brain. And the right brain is very interested in novelty, whereas the left brain is not. And of course, we always think with both sides of our brains together, but novelty and imagination and creativity are more right-brained than left-brained. And that's how you come up with something new, by being open to the unconscious and the right brain. And I'm not sure what you mean when you say you don't know how to manifest it. You may not know how to manifest it in the world, but you have an idea of steps you can take begin to manifest it. Well, maybe you start with just the idea and the desire, and it depends on the strength of the desire to lead you to the steps. Yes. Well, that's the thing. Desire has to be strong. And without desire, you're not going to do much. I think of desire as motivation. But yes, you have to have that desire. And that's Wallace Stevens said, Wallace Stevens, the poet, said, desire begins with a lack. And you have to sort of sense, like, maybe you just want to be more creative. Okay, that's really vague. Then you think, well, how can I be more creative? What do I like to do? And then you get a little more specific. Well, I like to write. Well, what would you like to write? Well, I kind of always wanted to be a playwright, but I have no idea how to be a playwright well, what can you do to learn how to become a playwright? Do you have any ideas about a play? Well, yeah, I I am thinking about the many generations in my family of matriarchs and how they pass down their trauma from one generation to another. Okay, well, that's a nice idea. Now you have to kind of think about that a little bit and maybe take pen to paper. Okay, I take pen to paper. It's not very good. And then you have to realize, okay, well, you're going to have to revise this maybe 200 times, and maybe you need to take a playwriting course. Okay, I'll take a playwriting course, and I'll present scenes in the class. And that's how you, you know, you, but you have to be very motivated. That's a true story, by the way. Mm -hmm. But you have to be very motivated, and I took, you know, some playwriting courses because I had ideas, but I didn't know how to structure it, and I didn't know how to write it, and I didn't know how to do it anything. So I took some courses, but I guess it all comes down to desire because there are ways to actualize almost anything. But I mean, you have to be realistic too. You know, I couldn't become an opera singer because I have no voice, but I have always written. So that's like a natural thing for me to try to do. But anything sort of in your general arena 
for example, if you wanted to, I'm sure you could write a book about your interviews and maybe include some and comment on how this has affected you in your life. And, you know, you've got the material, but you'd have to have a strong desire to do it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the things that I do is stuff that I have the basic ability to do, but I may not have carried very far or done anything at all. Like, I can give you another example. I used to sew as a young adult, and my grandmother made all my clothes, so I watched her sewing, and then I sewed. I used to make her clothes, and then I stopped. You know, when I went to graduate school, I stopped. Okay, now my daughter is an adult, and I taught her to sew, and she sews now, and she kind of got me back into it. And now I can do it, but I haven't done it in years and years and years, and everything has changed, patterns, machines, everything. And I was very rusty, but I could do it. I knew if I kept doing it. And now I'm making clothes for my friends and sending it to them during COVID. And it's been a lot of fun. Hmm. And it's something I could do, but I had to struggle to get back into it, to remember everything and to start again. Mm -hmm. So I pick things that aren't impossible. They're just difficult. And that's, I think, what you have to aim for. Mm-hmm. And working with desire, if the desire is strong enough, it generates a need to fulfill it. Well, that's it. And there's that that old saying that need is the mother of invention. Yes, exactly. So the desire has to be strong enough. Yeah. And if you're depressed, your desire isn't strong. And so first you have to work on your depression. If you're very anxious, that could interfere with desire, too. But I would still say you can still find desire even if you're depressed and anxious. Right. You could find the desire to overcome the depression. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And how do you do that? You do that by finding these meaningful activities. That is a wonderful antidote to depression because your self-esteem goes up. You get into a state of flow, which is totally antithetical to depression. Mm -hmm. But as you were saying, desire is born from a sense of lack, and once the sense of lack becomes strong enough, the desire Mm -hmm. reaches a a kind of critical mass. That's right. That's right. And that's why I went into the program to learn embodied imagination, which is the dream work technique that the incubation that I discussed is based on. This is a specific technique of dream work, and I heard the creator speak, and I sensed a lack in me that I wasn't being creative enough. And I sense it very strongly. And I sense that if I went to this program, I might be able to address that lack. And that's exactly what propelled me to take the program. But you have to be aware of the lack. You shouldn't be afraid to feel a lack in yourself because that can motivate you. And sometimes just going out into the world to listen to somebody with a new idea will create a new lack inside of us. (laughs) Absolutely. That's what happened. I wasn't that conscious of it until I heard him speak. Because fascination, in a way, is a manifestation of a recognition of a lack, perhaps. Yes, because what you're getting fascinated, maybe you don't have that yet. Right. And envy also can tell you about a lack. Because what you're envious of in someone shows what you want for yourself that you don't have yet. Mm -hmm. 
so you should listen to that and then say, wow, maybe I could develop that. How do I do it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that leads to another interesting thing that we should really listen to everything that arises within us because it could be telling us something that could be very useful. Yes, exactly. Or at least pointing us in a direction that perhaps we have not considered looking in before. Yeah, and it can also maybe help us find the courage to do what's needed to satisfy the lack, to address the lack. Because sometimes we have a lack because it's been very hard for us to do that particular thing. But if the desire is strong enough, we're willing to try. Right, exactly. Then I think operationalizing it isn't that difficult because there's so many resources out there to help people. Right. Endless, almost. Oh, yeah. Endless is right. The amount of things that are available just to learn, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. There's an odd kind of issue, like in the Buddhist tradition, there's a, a kind of perhaps westernized version of the understanding of desire, that desire is bad, that it, it leads to suffering, which seems like a misunderstanding of desire mm-hmm. or, or perhaps not making meaningful distinctions about certain types of desire. Yeah, well, we're not talking about greed or some kind of, you know, need to gamble or desire for alcohol. We're talking about satisfying something deep within that will lead to fulfillment, enjoyment, self-esteem, a feeling of worth. And, you know, it's hard to describe when you're doing something very meaningful that was driven by desire, it's a wonderful feeling. Right. There's almost a divine aspect to desire. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And like, you know, the myth is that God had a desire to create the world, so he contracted himself to create a void so the world could be created. And that he wanted, in his desire... He wanted to have a relationship with man. This is the Kabbalistic myth about the creation of the world. So, you know, he gave up something to create man so he could have a partnership with man. But then this is where the notion of free will comes in. He gave up the ability to control man. He gave them free will. That was what he had to give up in order to create the world. And of course, it's said that Man was created in God's image, and if you think in fractal terms, we are born with that same creative power, and it's out of a sense of lack that we can create. Right, exactly. Like, for example, with patients, we have to pull back as therapists to create the void so the relationship can be created with the patient. We can't dominate the environment, just like God can't dominate the environment. He had to pull back. So we give up control of the patient. And we also have to allow that the patient does have free will, and they can disagree with us, they can leave therapy, they can become something we may not in our deep heart approve of. So the patient has to create himself in the context of the relationship with us. And of course, we want that In all of our relationships, we want that level of respect for that kind of autonomy with everyone that we're in relationship with. 
or at least I, right. would, I would hope that we would all want that. Right, right. And that's, you know, like true of a parent with a child, you know, mm-hmm. who knows what that child will become. Mm-hmm. You know, but we hope that we've given them something that they can take with them, that whatever it is they do do, they have strength and they have imagination and they can create something good for themselves. Right. And the same thing with a partner. If we have a partner, we want them to develop and continue to create, and we hopefully aren't threatened by that. Right. But they may become different people throughout the life together, but you still have that relationship with them. Right, and even if in the process of becoming who they most want to be, if they end up leaving, you mm-hmm. still want the best for them. Absolutely. You don't want someone to stay in what feels like a stifling or unsatisfactory relationship, both for them and for yourself. You wouldn't want that. What kind of a partner would that be? Exactly. So, yes, you always want the person to become, or the creation, your your novel, to become what it's meant to be, so to speak. And that brings us back to creating a sense of sacred space within which we do everything. Yes. Yeah, I think so. When we talk to a friend, we should be creating sacred space. And when we're working with a a new creative desire, we need to create a sacred space within which it can blossom. Absolutely, absolutely. And you have to be kind to yourself because chances are in the beginning, you're going to fall flat on your face because this is a brand new thing. Exactly. (laughs) And, you know, and, and this happened to me the other day and I had to heed my own advice. I started seeing a patient and it was about the third session I had had with her. And I thought to myself, I don't think I'm very good with her. Like I'm not getting to her. I'm not understanding her. I'm not feeling her. And then I thought to myself, wait a minute, you just started seeing this patient. Maybe she hasn't revealed herself yet. Maybe you need more time. Maybe this is a very difficult beginning but it doesn't mean it's always going to stay difficult. And I had to talk myself down and realize this was the start of something which will develop. And sure enough, it did start to develop, and I did get more of a sense of her. And I've heard stories where people just needed to have somebody give them the space to not respond to Mm -hmm. them over and over again for very, very long periods of time that somebody who lacked a sufficient amount of faith in themselves and the other might interpret as a failure. Exactly. Exactly. In my anxious moment there, I was being like a god who didn't retract. I was trying to still control it. Mm -hmm. And once I realized that, I was able to pull back again and relax. But there is this anxiety sometimes in the void, because that was like a void in a way, because I knew nothing. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know more, because the void was making me uncomfortable, instead of letting the void form itself more organically. I was trying to impose on it. And that makes for very bad art, probably, and bad therapy. You have to move back and let it reveal itself to you. Mm -hmm. We have to develop a healthy relationship with our ego and not allow our ego to become too 
domineering mm-hmm. because it is the tendency of the ego to desire control. Right. And also it supposedly makes you feel safer. Supposedly. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But it's a total illusion. It doesn't work. Exactly. In fact, so, it tends to set us up for an even greater fall. Yes. Yes. But, you know, that anxiety is also part of the creative process. Mm-hmm. The anxiety to want to control, the anxiety that it won't be good, the anxiety that you will never know. This is also very much part of it. You have to tolerate this and keep moving back. Right. It's part of the alchemical process. You begin with the lack, Mm -hmm. and then step by step, the journey progresses. The journey progresses only then to begin again with the next crisis or project. Right. Which we do with patients, too, and we do in our life. You know, we have children, and then we go through that process. They leave. Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to do now? <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and then you hit retirement age. You have to make a decision about that. And, there, of course, there are many, many steps in between, but I'm just saying we're always starting over. Mm-hmm. Always encountering new challenges. Yeah, and that's the way it should be. I mean, that's the way it is, but... That's the way it should be. And I have patients who say, I just wish this would be over and I had all the answers. Yeah. You know, which is, again, a fear of the void. Mm-hmm. And that's the magic of having a trusting relationship with the creative process because you could say we're spiraling through life. Mm-hmm. That there's no real completion or conclusion to anything. That even death isn't necessarily a final destination. Mm-hmm. And anyway, even if there isn't life after death, our death and the meaning of our lives gets left with the people we leave behind. So it's alive in their memories. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned at the beginning the architecture, the specific architecture that you, oh, you saw. Yeah. Oh, my God. That was such an amazing experience. You enter the museum by descending down, which is like going down into the unconscious. It's underground, half underground, half on level. And there are three axes there that you can walk. One axis is like to death, like a tower that has no heat. It's like symbolic of the camp and being exterminated. Then another axis, it's called the axis of exile, which leads you through what the people who left Germany to go to flee to other lands and what they went through, because it's tilted. And as you walk in this garden, you get dizzy and disoriented. And this is how they felt. And then the other axis leads up a set of white stairs to an exhibit of all of the beautiful things the Jews contributed to the culture of Berlin, starting in the 4th century. And it was amazing. And it did help leaven the horror of everything. So you get an entire experience of horror and beauty mixed together. And then there are some incredible moments of interactivity. There was a woman, her name is Glickel of Hamlin, 
and she had something like 14 children. And her husband was a businessman, and he died. And she took over his business. This is in the 17th century. And she put her children in different cities all around Europe. And she traveled to these cities as part of their business. And she wrote the oldest memoir of a Jewish woman. I think it's eight volumes. She kept records of everything. And they have a picture of her, portrait of her, that's probably at least 100 feet tall, if not higher. And then you play this funny interactive game, guessing what she would take on her business trips. And you had choices of different things and so on. And there were many interactive exhibits that kind of lightened it. And then there was one of many very eerie exhibits where the other thing he did was he had periodic voids throughout the museum where there was nothing symbolizing a different kind of void in a way, the void of the horror of what was happening. And in one of these voids, he put an artist, an Israeli artist named Kaddishman, made 10,000 faces, metal faces, and he put them in this void, which looked like a river, and he just filled it with these faces. And then the visitors walk on the faces, and the faces make these horrible sounds like the anguish of the prisoners in the camps. And it was so eerie. Anyway, all of these things together just created this feeling in me of what people went through, but also pride, but also, again, that the architect, Liebskin, could take what was inside us and make it outside in the external world. I felt a transformation in myself about this. And there was also music playing, eerie music, based on some of Kafka's work. There was a library you could go to. And they had this incredibly wonderful little cafe bistro where you could sit and have delicious pastries and coffee. So it wasn't all gloom, but it was just an amazing experience, that place. And it's hard to even put into words how transformed I felt when I left but I felt much less upset about the Holocaust after I left there. And Liebskin spent 10 years there building this. He lived in Berlin for 10 years, sacrificed 10 years of his life to create this thing. I mean, it's amazing. Even the outside of the museum looks like a scarred body. It has like gashes in it in the middle that are very beautifully done. You know, they're beautifully done, but it's like the whole museum was gashed. And so it's just this work of art that I just couldn't get over. And very thoughtful, such a thoughtful construction. And I think it had many delays. The city of Berlin had to give a lot of money to this. It was a lot of, a lot of stuff going on politically, but it took 10 years to get it built. And when was it completed? I don't know. I went there at least six, seven years ago. So I'm sure it had been around, you know, so maybe it was built 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing place. And what a testament also that it is in Berlin, you know, Mm -hmm. and they allowed it to be built. And funded it. Yeah. Perhaps we could end with you sharing a joke or two from A Joke for Belly. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, some of them may not seem very funny out of context, but... I'll I, let you pick which uh-huh. ones you want to share and how you want to contextualize okay. them or not. Okay, well, um, I'll just give you a couple. Okay. Hitler is getting worried and asks his astrologer, am I going to lose the war? Yes, the astrologer said. Then am I going to die, Hitler asked? Yes. When am I going to die? On a Jewish holiday. But on what holiday? Any day you die will be a Jewish holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Here's another one. Goebbels was touring German schools. At one of them, he asked the students to call out patriotic slogans. Heil Hitler, shouted one child. Very good, said Goebbels. Deutschland über alles, another one called out. Excellent. How about a stronger slogan? Hand shot up, and Goebbels nodded. Our people shall live forever, the little boy said. Wonderful, exclaimed Goebbels. And what is your name, young man? Israel Goldberg. (laughs) And here's another one. When will Hitler commit suicide? When he gets the gas bill. (laughs) How does Hitler tie his shoelaces in little Nazis? So those are some of the jokes that kind of circulated during this time. But that's another thing that's so important is humor for resilience. I totally agree. Humor is one of my favorite things in the whole world. Yeah. Well, Leanne... It's been a pleasure to talk with you. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Again, the book is Imagination, Creativity, and Spirituality in Psychotherapy, Welcome to Wonderland, by my guest today, Leanne Domash. So again, Leanne, thank you so much. And thank you, Tonio. It's really a pleasure to talk with you. for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>